Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 163. On today's show, we have another Timelines episode, and this time we're looking at what happened in 1100 CE, specifically in North America. Let's dig a little deeper into North America, <laughs> into a mound. No, don't dig into mounds. <laughs> no, don't do that. Welcome to the show, everyone. How's it going? Pretty good. Sitting here on a chilly, rainy day and. Well, I say San Luis Obispo, California, but it's really like Avila Beach. We're closer to there. Yeah, technically the ad address is San Luis Obispo, though. Yeah, so, yeah, but the ocean's like three miles behind us. It is. And it's like the first kind of nasty day we've had since we got here. The felt pretty lucky. The weather's been really nice. Yeah. I don't know what it would have been like to be here prehistorically. It just like never would have left because I mean, the, the, <laughs> the temperature is... Yeah, it's always the same. Yeah. You know, it's never like super freezing cold. It's never like really hot. Yeah. It's always within the same 20, 30 degree temperature range. Yep. Like all year round. Mm -hmm. so, it's perfect for succulents. Yeah. There's the biggest prickly pear I've ever seen growing out behind us. <laughs> I know. I know. Yep. Back around 1100 AD, it would have been... <laughs> Really nice place to be, I think. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Although though, that's not one of the places we're talking about <laughs> today. <laughs> right. So our timeline series, for those that are possibly new to the show, first off, welcome. Yes. Uh, this is the Archaeology Show. We have a lot of episodes for you to go back and listen to. Yeah, definitely. And, and the show has changed over the years too, by the way. So, you know. Yeah. If you start at the very beginning, that's before I was here. Yeah. So just like fast forward to right. like episode 100 or so. Start there. Yeah, no, sure. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the past episodes are really good too. Yeah. So anyway, that's it. Also, there's a link in these show notes. Go check that out while you're listening to us because I don't want you to check out that link after you're over because you might not click on it. But we have a live show mm, that's yeah. kind of a live version of this podcast, so to speak, although we have a lot different segments. It's not a news show. We have guests. We have games. We have all kinds of stuff that we do. So that's every other Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 Eastern. And mm -hmm. if you're listening to this in real time as the show just came out on, I don't even know what day, March 20th, mm -hmm. then it'll be in like three days Yes, on Wednesday. March 23rd, I would yeah. assume, right? Yeah. Yep. And you have to go to culturalmedia.com to the live events page, and then the sign up link is right there. Yeah, we'll make it like the top link in the show notes. So if you're listening on yeah. a player or whatever, you can just hopefully click that link right there and get signed up for it. Yeah. All right. Well, as we said, timelines, 1100 CE. I said AD earlier. You kind of go back and forth with those. I know. I, do, I yeah. try to like make my brain say CE. I know I've said this before, but I try to make it say CE because I prefer it from a non-religious standpoint when you're talking yeah. about dates. 
but we're so ingrained to say AD that it just like yeah. comes out sometimes. So, well, the funny anyway. thing is we say CE to be non-denominational basically, right. but it's still based on the exact same <laughs> it totally thing. Is. It totally yeah. is. So, Maybe it's stupid to try to do it then. Just let it be AD and like move Honestly, on. Honestly, the only thing that would help is to go to Star Dates like Star Trek did. That's yeah. why they did it. It's more international and universal. I still like BP a lot and I feel like yeah. switching to that would, would be great. But it, that's also hard too. So, but like in a hundred years, when people are listening to this podcast, those dates. Will be I know, off. like when? It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a moving target when you do it that way. Yeah. So if you're listening to this in a hundred years, yes, we're recording in 2022. Hopefully, that's still a thing. It might not <laughs> right. be. But yeah. So anyway, so timelines in North America. A lot of times we start with an anchor event, something people know about. Although yeah. this time we we kind of have two anchor events. Well, it's not. I would say it's not really an anchor event. It's just that we were. We were kind of looking at Chaco Canyon. That's what we're going to talk about here in this first segment. Mm-hmm. Because it's such an amazing civilization all built all around the structures that are left and everything. And we were like, well, what else was going on in the world? And then we like d- dug a little deeper and we're like, well, actually, like there's a lot of really cool things happening just in North America, just with the you know, ancestral Native American populations in yeah. North America. So we're like, all right, cool. Let's just do a timeline to focus on what was happening right here in this one continent, how different they were, how similar, and that kind of thing. So that's yeah. what we're doing today. Like I said, dug a little deeper, as, <laughs> I, uh, as I say in the intro. I, I did. I didn't even do it on purpose. <laughs> wow. All right. So Chaco Canyon, we've been there. Yes, we it's have. A, it's a cool place. We actually Very worked, cool place. We worked at a site that had Anasazi artifacts. Mm-hmm. We worked on that back in like 2007 or eight or something yeah, like that. Yeah, that was a while ago. Yeah. But we were like, what, an hour from Give like take. Chaco yeah. Canyon proper, like it, down the dirt road and everything to get there. Right. So it was it was cool. I do not know because we were CRM archaeologists what the site we were working on dated to. I don't know. But had it been contemporaneous with Chaco, it would have been what was called a Chaco and outlier because yeah. Chaco was the, the big influence of the area, which we'll get into in a mm-hmm. minute. I remember not finding very much that was significant. It was an excavation, like a or a testing, a testing. Well, we found a lot of that Anasazi black on white because we, we came. Yeah. We came from the east coast where the pottery is like sand beaten and and just kind of like not painted anymore. Yeah, well, it was never still, painted; it was decorated. But yeah, yeah still yeah. kind of cool in its own right. Well, it could have been painted. It's just like the sand aided right, away. True, yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, but you get out there, and we're just like, look at this pottery <laughs> we found. And everybody's like, come back to me when you got a hundred pieces yeah, of it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, it was all over the place. Yeah, it's a very very cool area to work from an archaeological perspective because yeah. you usually have great preservation and Chaco, of course, this is an example of this great preservation. Yeah. So let's talk about Chaco. Yeah. So Chaco Canyon was listed on the National Register of Historic Places and it was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987. Which is shockingly late. It is shockingly late for such a significant site. Yeah. I mean, we've known about this site for, I mean, hundreds of years, really. Yeah. Since the 1800s, mm-hmm. at the very least. And people have been have been going there and studying it for at least the past hundred years plus. Yeah. And it's just like, I can't believe such a such an influential and, and just big site that contains a lot of different things. And, and maybe it's the fact that they didn't put it all together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But it, it and it's usually political in, in what makes something like this. Yeah. But it's not like there's oil or something out there that was being that was stopping i mean there probably is but <laughs> well yeah. it could be the remoteness of it like if you remember when we went there it's like an hour down a gravel road at least the the entrance we came in plus like several more hours to get yeah. to any like legit interstate so yeah. it's it's a it's a long ways out in the middle of nowhere right so there's easily 4000 plus prehistoric and historic archaeological sites in the Chacoan area mm-hmm. the Chaco Canyon area like part of the national park probably. Right, right. right. Yeah. 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 And, and even more when you look at the outliers, the mm-hmm. chocolate outliers and things like that. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's well over 10,000 years of human cultural history there. I mean, mm-hmm. people have been in this area. It's the southwestern United States. Yeah. And it's just... It's a place you can you can live relatively comfortably all year long. I mean, in the higher elevations, it will get freezing cold and snowing mm-hmm. in the in the in the higher elevations. But for the most part, you've got places you can go and be. Yeah, it's not like it's know? a constant like blizzard, right? right? Like you might have it every once in a while, but it's very livable year round. Yeah, like if you live in the Yukon, you got to learn how to live in the snow, <laughs> right? Totally, or walk a thousand miles. Yeah, something yeah. like that. But here, you could just kind of either learn to live with it, get in your get in your your buildings and things like that mm-hmm. that, that they did make, yep. or just like take off. Yeah, yeah. You know, go someplace warmer. Totally. So I'm sure they vacationed in Mexico. You know. 
That's a little ways away, but I mean, I'm not going to say no. Well, this is New Mexico. <laughs> Why wouldn't they vacation in old Mexico? Oh my God, so. you're so ridiculous. Anyway, uh, there has been, you know, more research conducted here, more archaeological research in Chaco Canyon uh-huh. uh, and the area of Chaco Canyon than pretty much any other prehistoric district in all of North America. It's just so, there's yeah, so much. There's, there's so just much. so much. And like, take a look at the links that we've provided. And I think the Archaeology yeah. Podcast Network has done more episodes across all of our different shows. On Chaco Canyon. <laughs> I, mean, I kind of had to use our search field on the front page just to see what we've talked yeah. about since this is such an important site. Yeah. And we've talked about it a lot. A lot. A lot. So here's one more for the search engine. I so I had to I had to just highlight some of the work that other hosts have done on mm-hmm. the show and, and, you know, mentions of Chaco Canyon. So that's yep. pretty cool to have that as a resource. Yeah. But either way, this area, as we said, has been around, you know, 10,000 years. There's been people here. However, the Chaco Canyon that we know and love, the the big roundhouses and the, the roundhouses, structures, the big structures, yep. the cities, the pueblos, as you call them, mm-hmm. those big things like Pueblo Benito is the biggest one. Those things started with the people that I guess started to build it up around the mid 800s, mm-hmm. um, the Anasazi people, the, the ancestral Puebloan, they call them, mm-hmm. or the Anasazi. There's some there's some baggage tied up in both of those terms. Yeah, like it's like it's names that are given after the fact and yeah. that kind of stuff. So, yeah. but they're ancestral Puebloan mm-hmm. people. Yeah, they built these great houses, they're called, with up to hundreds of rooms. Yeah. Uh, and that's why like Pueblo Benito is, I mean, it, in Spanish, that means, you know, pretty town. Yeah. But it really is one big structure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's not like something with a wall. It's like one big structure that was, you know, three acres, five stories tall. Yeah. And it just was like this like, monstrosity. It housed the whole, like, main nucleus of the town, basically, yeah. was in it, which yeah, is really cool. Yeah, everything was in there. Yeah. yeah. And these things take decades if not centuries to fully construct because mm-hmm. it sounds like the construction's never like really done. Yeah. They're building onto it. They're, they're modifying it. You know, things collapse. I mean, that's just what happens, mm-hmm. but they, they're always doing these different things. So, but the architecture here was what's been identified in the area as a specific Chacoan type of architecture. Mm-hmm. You see it here. You see it in the outlying, the, the little pueblos in the outlying the buildings, areas of Chaco. Yeah. There's other towns, so to speak, inside of the Canyon and there's some up on the Canyon rim. In fact, there's one, was it Pueblo Alto or something like that? Oh, yeah. We hiked up to that one. Yeah. yeah. The, like right from there, you can look over the ridge and see Pueblo Benito. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a feeling that if I were running Pueblo Benito, Pueblo Alto is where like the guardhouse would be. You know, the people, oh, who, yeah, totally. the people who lived and were like, hey, you know, yeah. here's, here's where you pay the entrance fee to get into Chaco. <laughs> so, or the early warning yeah. system if they're being invaded or something like that. You know, and wasn't there. I don't think we wrote about this in our notes, but I remember stairs built into the wall that you yeah. we couldn't really walk up. Oh Lord no. Because they were they were like rock climbing holes basically. Well they were they were um from what I understand there were carved in steps but also some of the areas that were more sheer, it really was holes that like a wooden that step a pe- platform yeah. would have been put into. Yeah. And then you I can't even imagine how many people died on those things. Oh I don't know. I feel like they they were very goat like well, in their ability to like hop maybe. around these rocks. I mean, I you feel know? like some people would have been, but yeah, well, when you everybody. start getting more sedentary, I feel like fewer and fewer people get like that. Yeah. So anyway, another cool thing about these structures, the towns, so to speak, I'm just going to call them towns, mm-hmm. is that it seems as though they were pointed in significant directions. Right. You know, like significant, like north, south, east, west kind mm-hmm. of thing. There's a lot of archaeoastronomy at Chaco Canyon. Mm hmm artifacts and rock alignments and petroglyphs and pictographs that are based on astronomical events. Yeah. And like the placement of the sun and the moon throughout the year and stuff like that. It seems like they really built their structures around that sort of placement. Yeah. This and the reason one of the reasons why it's on our, our radar for this timelines is by 1050 AD or so, or CE, 1050 CE, it was a major ceremonial center. Yes. They had canals. That would bring in water that would, you know, help them grow corn, beans, squash, all kinds of stuff. They had 200 miles plus of roads extending out from Chaco. Mm -hmm. And that was that was the Chaco and Road Network, which if you listen to the Sight Bites season one, it's all about Chaco Canyon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's linked in here. But they talk about one of the guests on Sight Bites with Carlton Gover, who was the host of that show. 
talks about really what these Chaco and roads are. We mm-hmm. call them roads because that's what our brain associates a road with. They're, mm-hmm. these, they're these straightish things that are really wide that, that go out for, you know, hundreds of miles. Mm-hmm. And we call them roads. But, you know, what were they really used for? So listen to those. Yeah. In the 1100s, the, you know, later 1100s, the building waned a little bit. People began to move out. The modern Southwest Puebloan tribes right now are descendants of people who lived, you know, or were influenced by Chaco Canyon. Yeah. And what I love about Chaco is that they built this amazing structure and all the people live there mm-hmm. together for the most part. There were outliers and stuff too. Yeah. And it, you, you really get this feeling of community from just looking at what, what remains of the town. And I, it's hard to get that idea yeah. of what the community was like when you're looking at places that don't have such great physical remains mm-hmm. left. So I think it's really cool. And I think that by 1100, which is our target date for this episode, they were sort of at like the height of the Chacoan society and what, what it could be, what it was going mm-hmm. to be. You know, things sort of started on the, the downside after that point or not too long after that point. So that's why we picked it as being what it was at 1100. Right. So, yeah. So this was first kind of brought into archaeological significance when uh, a guy named Richard Wetherill discovered the cliff dwellings around there and told colleagues at the American Museum of Natural History in uh, New York and uh, these guys called the Hyde Brothers, who are apparently associated with the AMNH, did I say that right? A-M-N-H. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Went out in the 1890s and did first excavations out there. Mm-hmm. So they were... Early excavations. Really then. early. Yeah. yeah. I mean, usually it's 30s, 40s when people started getting interested, well, right? <laughs> yeah. And this was getting into, you know, Indiana Jones territory because they basically just snatched a bunch of artifacts and yeah. stuff. Enough in one season to fill an entire freight car, a train <laughs> freight car, and, and haul oh it back gosh. to New York. So they're just like probably pulling whole pots out of the ground. Oh, yeah, like, sure look at this amazing thing yeah. and sending it away. Oh. Yeah. It hurts. What's interesting (laughs) about it being set up as a UNESCO World Heritage Site and on the National Register of Historic Places in the 80s is that in 1907, it was set up as Chaco Culture National Historic Park. That's what it's called now. Yeah. So it's been a national park. So it's had some kind of protection for at least 100 years. Yeah. Yeah. So it just didn't make it into UNESCO until later. Right. So the black on white pottery mentioned earlier is pretty cool, too. That was made. Uh, it's called black on white because it, it it's essentially like a white base with like black, you know, geometric designs right. on it. Like they do like a slip yeah. of white on the right. outside of the pot and then they paint on it in black. Yeah. And that was made with a, a mineral paint that was made by grinding up stones. Basically, mm-hmm. the mixture was put into water and then painted onto pottery. Yeah. I think that's what slip means when yeah. I use that. It's when it's like a, a color mixed with water and then mm, you put yeah. it painted on. So, yeah. They also found uh, cacao residue on oh. some pots, which was the first time this was found basically north of Mexico uh-huh. when we found this in Chaco. So, yeah. and which just illustrates the vast trade networks that Chaco mm-hmm. was part of because you don't grow that there. No, no. They definitely yeah. were trading in order to get their hands on that. Yeah. So some quick notes about uh, archaeoastronomy that I really love about Chaco in the yes. last few minutes here. The supernova pictograph. Mm-hmm. There's a supernova that happened in 1054, and we know that date specifically because the Chinese well documented it. Mm-hmm. Uh, other cultures, the Greeks, I think, the Romans, around the world, yeah, people around the world saw this supernova yep. because it didn't just like pop into existence and go away. Yeah. It was visible for a little while. It was an, an unusual bright light in the sky, and everybody yeah. took note of it. And under this one cliff overhang that we saw when we were going out to, it was like Penasco Blanco or something like that. It was, it was like it was a, a long hike. It was like a ten mile round trip hike yeah. to get out there. Very long, yeah. Hike. And uh, it was all the way at the end of the canyon. I don't know which end, but if you're looking at Pueblo Benito, you go left. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> was, yes. That's all I remember. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and so it was all the way out there, but on the way up the stairs, because this was outside the canyon right on the rim, on the way up there is the supernova pictograph. And it's mm-hmm. just a red like image of a like a sunburst right. and I think a moon or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really cool. There's also the sun dagger petroglyph, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. Two whirl-shaped kind of like swirly things, carvings behind rock panels. Uh, it's called the Three Slab Site, but basically the sun shines through this slit in the rocks and at the solstices, the winter and spring solstice at the very least, uh, mm-hmm. at the solstices, it hits these spirals at certain predictable spots, okay. like on the edges. And then throughout the year, you can almost mark like where you are in the year where this slit of sunshine is hitting the uh, spiral. okay. Yeah, cool. it was a clock essentially, yeah, a calendar. Yeah, that's really yeah. advanced, really cool. I know. That that's all happening in that, you know, late 
late 10 hundreds. <laughs> yeah. In, <laughs> Is 10 hundreds a thing? Uh, it, well, I, I'm going to make it a thing. 10 hundreds and 11 hundreds. 10 hundreds. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but uh, the cool thing is it doesn't just mark the year because it's it's of the right size and positions that it actually marks an entire 18.6 year lunar excursion cycle, oh, it's called. Cool. So the moon kind of travels a little bit in its orientation and, and you know how it orbits the earth. And they were actually recording that at Chaco Canyon. Right. Yeah. Totally. Why did Chaco collapse? Well, that is one of the big questions. If you ever read Jared Diamond's book on collapse, yeah. called collapse, I mean, it's a little bit contentious, almost like, not as bad as guns, germs, and steel, but yeah. um, either way, he talks about Chaco and a few other cities and uh, cities and things like that and you know yeah. areas, but I, a lot of people think it was it was more just drought. Yeah, so there was a fifty year drought that is well documented in this time frame, and it seems that the abandonment of the structures was happening in. Like it coincided with the end of this drought or coming to the end of this drought. So it might just be like a lack of resources sort of force people out. Mm -hmm. But I do want to stress that it's not as if those people died and were gone. They just left that area and moved to somewhere else. So using the word collapse is really only in reference to the people living in this particular location. They simply moved on and went and lived somewhere else where probably the resources were better. Maybe it was conflict that pushed them out and they went to find a more peaceful living situation. Who knows? Who knows? Well, I'm willing to bet they left because they wanted to get their kicks on Route 66 (laughs) and head straight to Illinois, where we'll talk about Cahokia back in a minute. Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. What's better than free money? How you choose to spend it. Open a CQ checking account and get $250 to spend freely. And that's not all this credit union offers. Do your banking, build credit, and invest in your future. Visit secumd.org today. Welcome back to episode 163, uh, hashtag George Russell, of the <laughs> oh my God. archaeology show. He's just 63. <laughs> just 63. So. <laughs> but he's going to be number one. Any Formula One oh, fans out there? Oh, not this year. Mercedes <laughs> is not looking good. Yeah, well, he'll do better anyway. <laughs> better car. Anyway. Sorry, no more racing talk. Yeah. We don't we don't really watch sports ball, but we watch weirdly Formula One. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. But it's not weird. It's Netflix. Thanks, yeah, it's Netflix. true. You dropped it in front of our faces and we consumed. Actually true. You yeah. know, as a cult, people interested in culture, go watch Drive to Survive on yeah. Netflix. We do not not an affiliate link here. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's really interesting watching the dynamic, the international dynamic that takes yes. place you yeah. know, as that hits different areas. But yeah. we won't talk about the, you know, potential damage it does to places flying around the world with their million dollar nope. cars and stuff. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So Cahokia. Yeah. <laughs> Switching topics completely. <laughs> Let's talk about Cahokia. The biggest Native American city north of Mexico. Yes. And... Again, 1100 is a pretty key time frame for Cahokia because it reaches like a height at that point. Yeah. Just like Chaco. Well, the mayor of Cahokia was like, look at Chaco. <laughs> we got to step this up. I mean, there probably was some trade between them because the Chacoan roads went so far. And then there's also a lot of evidence of trade with Cahokian people, too, which we'll get to get to mm-hmm. that in a minute. But yeah, there might have been trade between them. Who, Who knows? knows? So... Cahokia is named after the Cahokia tribe, which is a part of the historic Illinois people. And that would be like where Illinois comes from. They lived there when Europeans arrived, but that does not necessarily mean that they are the people who occupied Cahokia. Sure. They might not even be descendants of them. We don't really know. They they just are the namesake of the site. Yeah. So people began moving into this area in the 600 to 900 time frame. And the tra- the culture transitions from like a late woodland to Mississippian culture. That kind of transition is all happening at the same time period. 
Yeah, and the woodland time varies, but it generally yeah. goes from about 10,000, uh, sorry, 1,000 BCE to 1,000 CE. Yeah. And these time periods, like woodland, Mississippian, they're actually just invented by archaeologists yes. in order to, to break things up. Yeah, it, they're usually based upon, you know, technology like stone tool technology, building technology. Mm-hmm. What did they do? The, the woodland is often referred to as also like part of the mound builder era, although that does extend into the Mississippian. Yeah, like the Mississippians are the ones that are really known as the mound builders, but yeah, the woodland... kind of starts in the woodland. Yeah, the woodland people are are the predecessor, right? And like yeah. the descendants of them are the ones who actually start doing the whole mound thing, like you get at Cahokia. Mm-hmm. And the Mississippian time period, again, it fluctuates a lot, but that's like around 800 C- CE to 1600 CE. And that would be right around when like Europeans were arriving, basically. Yeah, yeah the middle Mississippian, which is the, at the, the height of the culture in this time period, is what we're talking about with Cahokia. Yeah. So Cahokia is one of the most important and largest Mississippian centers. There are other ones, of course. There's Moundville in Alabama, Angel Mounds in Indiana, and Kincaid site in Illinois. And there's evidence of trade between all of these different sites. So these people were definitely well connected to each other and, and, you know, all the trade was happening. Yeah. And there's trade as far out as the Great Lakes to the north, the Gulf Coast to the south. Yeah. I mean, that definitely brings them into the southwestern It's possible. I I mean, maybe they met in the middle or something. Maybe. You know, I'm willing to bet people spread out and Mm -hmm. and met in the middle of the country. They would have had other Native American groups to deal with there. But yeah, but it's a long, a long distance to cover to go from Cahokia to Chaco. So but the thing is, trade networks, they're called networks because you could have traded 20 miles outside of Cahokia and then 20 miles outside of that. Depending on the rarity or the preciousness of the item being traded, Mm -hmm. I would imagine like commodities like food were not traded super far, right. um, unless it was a precious one that was hard to find, like cacao. Yeah. It'd be something to find cacao in Cahokia. Yeah. Yeah. I would make a coffee shop called that. The, the <laughs> Cahokia Cacao. Cahokia Cacao Cafe. Oh, wow. You can't even say that. So Cahokia Cacao neither, Cafe. Neither can your customers. <laughs> That's why we collapsed. Yeah. All right. So one of the main products that Cahokia was exporting, if you will, <laughs> is the Mill Creek mm-hmm. Chert. It was a, just a super valuable type of chert. It made really amazing tools and it was highly valued and they controlled it. So therefore they could, you know, use it as trade. Yeah. Chert is chert is chert kind of around the world. Yeah. But the colors that you get in chert are very, very dynamic and dependent on the mineral content of the areas in which the chert formed geologically. Mm -hmm. So you can have some chert that's just like all white. You can have chert that's like all black, all brown, but you can have chert that's like 50 different colors if you look at it right. Yeah. And some is finer and some is grittier too. So like having a really good, really fine source that naps really well is, is key for making really good, really strong tools. Yeah, it's like uh, some of the stuff becomes precious and some doesn't. It's like carbon. Yeah. Nobody wants carbon. That comes out of your fire. But if you press it hard enough, it becomes a diamond. Yeah, right. And now we want it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there was a new religious movement happening around 1050. And then also there were new ways of living and organizing the society. And this is all like happening at the same time. And sort of all these changes coming together are what allowed, not allowed, but helped Cahokia grow into the 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 center that it became. Yeah. One of the guests of the Life in Ruins podcast, uh, just an episode or two ago from when you're listening to this, Mm -hmm. they had a guest on who has worked at Cahokia. And one of the segments, I think the second segment of that Mm -hmm. show, she talked extensively about um, Cahokia. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting to listen to. Yeah, definitely a good one to listen to. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. The cool thing about this place, I mean... You wouldn't know it if you've ever been to Cahokia because you can, if you're standing on the top of the uh, uh, the largest mound, which is called Monk's Mound, mm-hmm. which you can do, yes. uh, you can see the St. Louis Arch. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. Now, yeah, I don't we, remember when we went up in the arch being able to see Monk's Mound because it really is just kind of a grassy a gra- hill. Yeah, it's a grass covered hill. So, you, probably with binoculars, you could see it. But you'd have to know where like to look and what you're eye. looking at. Yeah, with the naked yeah. eye, it kind of just blends into the landscape. Yeah. But there were, you know, there, while there's, you've got huge St. Louis right there. It's just hard to imagine a big city on the other side of the river. Yeah, but 
30 to 40,000 people lived in this metropolis yeah. of Cahokia. That's, That's amazing. It's amazing. It, it must. It was the biggest city north of Mexico, I mean, like we said. How do they handle like waste and oh, garbage? Oh, I know. And what, but, you know, we think that. Yeah. Now, people have to go to the bathroom. That's something you're just going to have to deal with. Yeah. But garbage in the sense of that, like when, when, you know, like when COVID first started happening in places like New York, garbage was piling up in the streets because yeah. we throw everything away. Yeah. But back in the day, that wasn't common. Right. I didn't even think about that. But there's no like packaging no. to throw away. Like your packaging is the the husk around the nut that you're eating. You're, <laughs> you you're, burn that. You're reusing. You yeah. have you have many uses for the things that you're yeah. using. There's very little things I think that would just be outright thrown away. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even pottery in a lot of these places is once it's done, it may be used for other things. The pieces of it, or it may be just crushed up, and now it's basically it's just it's under your feet. Or yeah, totally. I mean, what's the difference? Yeah, absolutely. You know? Well, like we talked a couple episodes ago, they use fragments of sherds to teach their children how to right in mm-hmm. uh, whatever town that was in somewhere in the Middle East. So like yeah. they find uses. These prehistoric peoples would find uses for everything. I think there's very little trash. Yeah. There were in the larger Cahokian area there and there was a fence around the whole thing. I mm-hmm. think that's been shown archaeologically. Yes, yeah, there definitely was. Yeah. yeah. But there was about 120 mounds, give or take, spread across an area that is about six square miles. Yep. So even looking at the thirty to 40,000 people in six square miles, that's a pretty high population density. Mm-hmm. And like we said, the largest was Monk's Mound. It faced south. It was 100 feet high, 951 that's feet huge. long, and 836 feet wide and covers three 13.8 acres. It's massive. What's, what's insane about the fact that there's so many mounds and, and big mounds like this one. Now, this was the biggest one. That doesn't mean all the rest were tiny. Yeah. There were some other equally large mounds, just not as big. D- yeah. But the crazy thing is these mounds, they took up so much space and yeah. you didn't live inside of them. They're big piles of dirt. Yeah. And they were building, there's layers on layers on layers. So like the bigger the mound got it, it almost just means it's older because they were just putting another layer on top of it. They had to make the base bigger and they had to put another layer on top of it to keep building up, which is what they did in a lot of cases. I mean, it was almost, it was almost guaranteed, even if we didn't know anything about cultures or anything else. And this is the first thing we ever studied because you can't live inside of these things. They're not like residential Mm -hmm. or even palace type structures. The only reason you would keep building higher and higher and higher is religious prestige or like political prestige. Yeah, like you want to bump yeah. yourself up higher than the people yeah. around you. Yeah. So like powerful families would probably had a, a flat, you know, like a structure on top of the flat top mm-hmm. of these mounds. Yeah. And they would just, you know, build and build and build. Yeah, totally. They, I mean, they speculate that on top of Monk's Mound was another structure that would have added like added another like 50 feet. That's so, huge. Yeah, yeah, it was just massive. And then the cell, cell antenna on top of that, like, <laughs> you know, there's always an antenna on top of the so highest maybe, thing. Maybe there's like a torch or something. Well, actually, I don't know. That might have been a fire yeah. danger. <laughs> I mean, historically, that little side note, because we like to take 10 on this show. Uh-huh. I just saw an article back when it was first built. The Eiffel Tower in Paris was the tallest structure, man-made structure uh-huh. in the world. Uh-huh. They just added, it's no longer at that anymore, but they just added another 50 feet to it or something like that because they put another antenna put an on antenna top up. of the <laughs> antenna structure that's on there. <laughs> yeah. And they had to lift it up there with a helicopter. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The base of the mound was larger than the base of the pyramid at Giza. Yeah. That just puts it in perspective. Like you yeah. can see in your mind how big those pyramids are. Mm-hmm. This was just as big. Yeah. So some of these mounds were probably not just for elevating the people. Yeah. And uh, living on. Yeah. They were also living in, in the afterlife. <laughs> so Mound 72, it's called, was a burial mound. We know that for sure. Yeah. And, and it definitely contains the remains of at least one important leader. And they know that because they found the body of, I think, of like a 40-ish year old man who's buried on a bed of more than 20,000 marine shell disc beads that are arranged in the shape of a falcon. Where do those beads come from marine shell well they're right on the mississippi and, so yeah, but, maybe i mean there are obviously freshwater shells yeah like, but no, i just didn't conceive of the fact that there could have been like that many that it was a resource yeah i don't you know? know i mean being that close to such a large river they probably could yeah. get access to a fair amount but twenty thousand of them that's crazy well and right there in the st louis area uh, i bet a lot washed in from um the Great Lakes as well. Oh, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. there's Great Lake tribute. Mississippi doesn't go up into the Great Lakes, but mm-hmm. there are tributaries that probably hit the Mississippi that do go up into the yeah. Great Lakes. I'd have to look at that for sure. But yep. yeah. 
Anyway, they found in this same mound uh, with that leader uh, approximately 250 other burials in that mound. Yeah. Some of which had evidence that they could be sacrifices. Yeah. Like some of them look like they might have been buried alive. They're basing this on the shape of their fingers and and saying that it looked like they were trying to claw their way out. Had a real Pompeii-esque image to them, did they sometimes? (laughs) Yeah. Screaming in pain. I have a little bit of skepticism about that because as the flesh decomposes away, like the bones just sort of of like fall. curves things and dries and yeah and like there's soil pressing down on it and yeah. it's just like the I don't know if I'd put too much stock into the shape of the bones that were left behind but who I knows also maybe 100% believe that a thousand years ago they were burying people alive yeah no like totally that could happen yeah. especially with a leader that they used 20,000 yeah. shells to make a falcon image to lay him to rest on right right <laughs> I mean clearly this dude was important so I better be laid um, to rest on a falcon image as well <laughs> Like, that's what I want. I'm going to put you in a boat and light you on fire and push you out to sea. That'd actually be kind of (laughs) cool. I want to be not quite dead when that happens. So I can just die on a boat. Oh, so you want me to murder you? That's fine. I mean, I'm going to die. That's actual murder. (laughs) Is it actually murder or is euthanasia? Oh. By the way, my brother doesn't listen to this, but I remember him saying one time in college, when he was in college, he was like, man, why is everybody always talking about the kids in Asia? I just don't understand. Why? I'll never forget him saying that. Oh, my God. It's one of those things that, like, you don't know you're wrong about until you say it out loud, and then you're like, oh, shit. He also (laughs) visited me when I was in North Dakota one time and wondered why the Twin Cities of Minneapolis-St. Paul, he's like, why do they put the state after the (laughs) city or something like that? I don't know what it was. Oh, my God. It was weird. But anyway, they had some pretty good technology here, as you would imagine, for, you know, 40,000 people. They were figuring some stuff out. They had a copper workshop, which is pretty cool. So they're working in metal. Obviously, that's amazing. Yeah. They They were competing with England in their structures (laughs) by putting up large things, large hinges, if Uh you will. Oh, like a wood hinge? A wood hinge. (laughs) No, this is really cool. And the guests that the Life in Ruins had on talked about this a little bit. But there's a wood hinge, which is basically a large timber circle. And there is evidence that that they were taking the smaller Mm -hmm. posts out and replacing them with larger posts. Uh Bigger and bigger wood hinges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just replacing them with bigger ones. Yeah. So so as with all big cities in the past, it was eventually, unless you're, you know, like in Rome or Greece, which just stay big cities. Yeah, it just still is. But uh, (laughs) Ebbs and flows, though, Ebbs and flows, yeah. But there's a lot of land out here and not as many people. So at that time, so, you know, things could be abandoned if if no longer used. Mm -hmm. Still kind of surprises me. I, I feel like when something like this is abandoned, the reason people don't come back, it's probably largely spiritual. It's like maybe the maybe the area is seen as cursed or bad luck or something. I don't really know, and I don't yeah. think we will know. But to abandon a place that is built up so well and and presumably yeah. easy to le- to live in because there are so many structures and everything, and the infrastructure is there. Well, like, and I always wonder you- like if somebody just like walking by three hundred years later. You know, some some family that's coming down from somewhere that's never even heard of or seen Cahokia walks by and goes, what in the actual hell is going on here? I'm going to live here. I'm going to put my house on the top of that hill. Yeah, totally. I imagine that did happen, but just not to the significance of a city that we can see in the archaeological record. Mm -hmm. So but anyway, by the mid 1350s, uh, it was basically abandoned. Yeah. We'll never know the exact reasons. And people say the usual things like environmental reasons, like flooding or drought or human, like outside conflict or political issues. But again, if it were not something, you know, spooky, I mm-hmm. imagine people would have just come back. And one of the things I heard mentioned, I think, from that guest on the Life and Ruins podcast in the last episode was that there seems to be evidence of like a like a radical religious movement yeah. that actually kind of tore the whole society down yeah. and then never rebuilt it. And that would totally do it, right? Yeah. Like that's definitely a reason for people to leave. So yeah. and and like we have mentioned before, there was definitely like a a large like global drought kind of going on mm-hmm. in the 1300s, so that might have yeah. helped contribute to them leaving. It's it's impossible to say really. But again, we're not going to use the word collapse because the people yeah. just left and went somewhere else. Right. They were not gone. I mean, the city kind of collapsed, but the people did not. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So much like St. Louis today. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's been 
the whole area of Cahokia was bought by the state of Illinois in 1923. I'd like to be the family that like sold that to them. Like, what have you guys done with your life? I've sold Cahokia, whatever. <laughs> like, who owned that to begin with? Uh, I'm who, yeah, I'm some, not sure who they bought some, it from. <laughs> yeah, on some land grab in the 1800s was like, right. I'll take that. Yeah, <laughs> but it became a national landmark in 1964 and was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1966. By 19 19- 82, it had become a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So mm-hmm. all all sorts of protections yep. and apply arche- to that. Archaeology-wise, there's been some excavations to protect it when various different things like erosion or landslides or whatever, or like sliding of the, the mounds are endangering it. But there hasn't been a whole lot of excavation in the last hundred years because it's mm-hmm. mostly really about preserving it rather yeah. than excavating it. All right, well, we're going to use some of those Cahokian road networks, head on back down Route 66 to the (laughs) southwest, and talk about the Hohokam. Back in a minute. Welcome back to the third and final segment of episode 163 of the Archaeology Show. We're talking about timelines, 1100 CE, with the common era, that means, Mm -hmm. in North America. If you're in present day, that is, what, like almost a thousand years ago? Yeah, yeah, close to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wait, that's more than a thousand years ago. What year is it now? 2022. 2022. So, is, you're really struggling so with 1100 this. So, 1100 was 922 years ago. Correct. BP. Yep. Bef- British, British Petroleum. No. Okay, so <laughs> the Hohokam. We're going to talk the rails about that. I know. If you've ever heard the CRM Archaeology podcast, you've heard Bill White say uh, lots of things about the Hohokam because he oh, worked in did Arizona. He study them? Oh, well, cool. he worked in Arizona. Oh, okay. If you're an Arizona CRM archaeologist, yeah. he's like, you can't walk three feet without stepping on a Hohokam village. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. And this, this is in a similar region as Chaco, but it was pretty far away. And at the same time, they sort of had their different things going on, which is why we decided to talk about Hohokam as our third well, site. I mean, we talked about, you know, Chaco trading with Cahokia speculatively. Uh-huh. I mean, they definitely would have traded with these guys. They definitely did. Yeah. And there's there's definitely some influence from the ancestral Puebloan. Puebloan. Pleblowin. All this is staying in, by the way. No, it's not. You <laughs> yeah, better it take is. it out. Ancestral Puebloan. Pleblo- That's a hard word to Pleblo- say. <laughs> the old Sidian. The, I'm done. The old Townians. The Anasazi people <laughs> definitely were influence, influencing the yeah. Hohokam by the end of their society. So where we're talking about here, it's southwestern, primarily... the. It's a southwestern culture and yeah. primarily the southern half of Arizona and some of the top of or the northern part of Mexico as well. That's why a lot of Tucson is Hohokam sites. Yes, things exactly. Like that. Yeah. yeah. And it was mostly found along the Gila and Salt Rivers. So we're looking at around 200 CE to 1400 CE and divided into four periods that archaeologists and historians have called the pioneer, colonial, sedentary, and classic. So the sedentary period is about 975 to 1150. That fits within our timelines uh, area here. Mm-hmm. And that is the height of geographic occupation, meaning that's as far out as they, you know, where they were spread they out the spread furthest. Out, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And likely, obviously, the highest population size as well to be able to cover that much area. Mm-hmm. But... To be clear, these the Hohokam people definitely are a slightly earlier group than mm-hmm. the Chaco and the Cahokian people were. Like they, yeah. they're they're definitely coming to the end by the eleven hundreds. So yeah. yeah, and we're mostly talking about the people here, unlike Chaco and Cahokia, where we're really talking about some big cities and living areas. Yeah, this is more of a, a larger culture yeah that was in an area but had a similar rise and and fall so to speak yeah there's not like a really really great set of ruins that we can point you to that represent this time period there are other time periods but not this one and that's partly because they lived in small-ish villages and Mm -hmm. the and a lot of the structures were just like simple pit houses which you don't get the big big imposing structures or mounds or whatever like you see in other cultures so similar to some of the Mayan structures, at some point they began building some uh, platforms and ball courts. We saw the ball courts at uh, Chichen Itza. Yeah, yeah. It, it looks like they were pretty similar to that. So that's pretty well, cool. Well, that, that ball court at Chichen Itza was like an Olympic stadium compared to... <laughs> yes, right. The idea behind it is, right, is right. similar. Yeah. Not that they were necessarily influenced by the Mayan. Mm-hmm. They might have been. They yeah. were just to the south, but much earlier. So who knows? But yeah. 
And interestingly, also around 1100, this community was basically at its peak if you measure peaks in terms of, say, population like, size. Yeah, like population yeah. size. Yeah. They yeah. had extensive canal systems in order to produce tobacco and agave. So that was like their main products that they were mm-hmm. making. So if you did want to go and visit a site, well, you can't. <laughs> so <laughs> Snake Town is, was probably the largest settlement. It had about 1,000 to 3,000 people at its height. And like I said, this was a much smaller group of people, and that would have been a much smaller town, though still rather sizable for, for a prehistoric people. And Snake Town is on the Gila River. It's in the Hohokam Pima National Monument near Santan, Arizona, which is like 30 miles southeast of Phoenix. And the reason why I said you can't go see it is because that national monument is part of the Gila River Indian community, Mm. and it is not open to the public. They've chosen to keep it closed, and I'm not even sure they publicize like the actual location of the site because they don't want people sneaking in, and they just have chosen to protect it. Okay. In fact, there's nothing to see on the surface. I saw a couple pictures of it. They kind of look like those site overview pictures that you take that are just like like a wide view of land and just a skinny little piece of sky. And it's just like sagebrush and vegetation. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, the site itself is probably just completely buried still. And there's probably a lot to find there if it were to be excavated. But that's mm-hmm. not something that they have chosen to do. Yeah. We do know that it was a large site and that it covered probably around 250 acres at its maximum extent. It was first excavated in 1934 and then again from 1964 to 65. And that is the only thing that the only excavations that have happened there. And like I said, there's nothing visible on the surface because in part because it was completely reburied after the last excavations. Mm -hmm. All it was completely backfilled. All the dirt was was re. And re-added. So the site, when it was excavated in the 60s, they found it to contain 60 midden mounds and a central plaza with two oval-shaped fields or ball courts, which is different from what we saw down in Mexico. Those were like rectangular ball courts, mm-hmm. and these are oval. So I suppose they were probably playing a different game or something, but that is pretty cool. So, sort of the hohokam spin on the ball court idea. Like the difference between a pool table over here and a pool table in England? They're what is like, the difference? They're much bigger and they're called snooker tables. Oh, really? But it's basically pool. Be- oh, okay. But sure. it's just like uh, it's like an evolution of the game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. So it does seem like this site was quickly abandoned and probably around 1100. And there is some evidence of fire damage, like a lot of the structures. So that it could have just been a fire that pushed yeah. everybody out. But it could have been because of drought. Maybe the drought contributed to the fire if they didn't have enough water to to battle a fire situation, you know? Like, mm-hmm. who knows? Yeah. So the Hohokam ceramics are defined by a distinct plain category, a red category, and then a decorated buffware tradition. And that is pretty different from what you see up in Chaco and the Anasazi tradition, which is the the black on white thing going on up there. So this is definitely different and very specific to this area. And just a quick notes about what happened to the people themselves. They were heavily influenced by the Anasazi people around like 1300-ish. And they started building structures at that time. Like there's one called Casa Grande Ruins, which are near Tucson. Which we we should have gone to. I know. We didn't have a chance to go see it, but like it's right off the interstate. I think you can get there pretty easily. And that would be an example of those. They were built in like the 1300s. So the the population as it was around 1100, which is what we're talking about, which is when that Snake Town site was at its height. Mm -hmm. It just sort of shifted at a certain point and became very influenced by the Chaco ancestral Puebloan people. They just had a heavy influence and it became not a combined society, but a society that was becoming more, there was more conformity because Mm -hmm. of the uh, influence that was happening there. And then most Hohokam sites are abandoned by the 1450s. And that's that. Yeah. So let's, let's talk real quick at the end of this segment here. And by the way, don't turn this off because... For members, we do have a bonus segment coming yeah. up. So check out your bonus pages over at uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash members. You can see your um, access to your bonus pages there. Are we saying what we're talking about in the bonus Yeah, we're going to talk about the prehistory okay. of the Pacific Northwest. Okay, cool. Yeah, so yeah. that's going to be pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I've been trying to look up because I, I had some knowledge that I was trying to just solidify here. 
And it's really interesting. There is a climactic anomaly that took place around 950 to 1250 yes. in most of the world yeah. called the medieval warm period. Mm-hmm. And it is a it is a time when, well, the climate in North America was uh, warmer than usual, mm-hmm. which would have caused droughts, mm-hmm. which would have caused, you know, resource use intensification because things were declining, like, you know, tree growth and things like that uh, as the droughts got pretty significant. Yep. Um, things were cooler, however, in like the North Atlantic and some other places. And it was just, you know, the temperature was generally increased, though, in the in the mm-hmm. latitudes that we're talking about here. Now, that was followed by a cooling period as well, which people seem to be able to survive a little better mm-hmm. because, you know, you still have water and food. Yeah. It's just colder. It's just a little chillier. Yeah. yeah. They actually call it, it was a, such a dip in temperature, they call it the Little Ice Age. Yeah. And that goes from, uh, I mean, 1400, give or take, to the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in the last 100 years... The it hockey sticks. If you've ever heard people talk about that, if you don't believe yeah. anything about like human generated climate change, mm-hmm. all you have to do is look at the temperature scales. They're so consistent, and like a like a half a degree centimeter drop, sorry Celsius drop, we or, or climb. We call it a warming period. Yeah, and then we got a, a, a zero to half drop, and we call it an ice age. Well, it's gone up over a degree. Like yeah, twice that, if yeah. not more than that. Yeah, in the last one hundred years, and it's directly related to human. Well, activities. Yeah, and initially to industrialization, but mm-hmm. then all the other things we've done since then. So, yeah. But what's really interesting about that is that warming period that you're talking about, it's definitely what a lot of scientists sort of or archaeologists cite as potential reasons why these different mm-hmm. cities were abandoned at the times that they were. Yeah. Because it might have caused drought in the area because that half a degree was enough that it would, you know, mess with their water sources or whatever. And yep. obviously the people it was it was a resource thing, right? Like they maybe they didn't want to leave Pueblo Bonito or Cahokia, Monk's Mountain. Maybe they didn't want to leave those places, but they had to because the resources were gone because yeah. there was drought and they had to go find what they needed to survive somewhere else. It makes sense to me. I mean, when you got that many people living in one spot, it's just, yeah. it's, it's hard a, to... It's a drag on the environment. Yeah. Yeah. What surprises me is like Cahokia. I mean, if you've ever been in that area, it's relatively... I mean, there's forests, yeah, there's, there's, very green. there's rivers. Mm-hmm. I'm like, even if you're in a, a pretty bad drought period, is there really fewer animals and stuff? I mean, there would be, but I, I feel like the ability to eat and find food would have been not as bad mm-hmm. during a, a droughting period. Well, and that's why you know? for Cahokia specifically, the religious shift yeah. does make sense as one of the reasons why it why the the city was abandoned. So that makes sense. Right. And in, in an era across the planet when people are uh, really aligning religious intensification, like religious practice with directly aligned with like crop growth and the weather and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't sacrifice enough, whatever, the weather's going to be bad. Right. Or if you're a terrible leader, then, you know, we're going to get a new leader in there because that'll make the weather better because the gods like the new leader better. Right. So when you have this medieval warming period across the planet where droughts are happening, you're going to have people going, you know, either new religion because the old religion is causing us to, you know, they're, they're taking away our lives and our livelihoods because we're not, you know, they don't like us. So we're mm-hmm. going to, we're going to get rid of this old religion or the people in charge of that religion. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you just see that during this, during this time period, I mean, literally across the entire planet. Yeah, for sure. So it's crazy. Yep. All right. Well, we're going to call it for this episode. Please go over to culturomedia.com. The link is in the show notes, actually, to sign up for this thing. But if you want to see all the other live events we have, go to culturomedia with a K.com and click on the live events page. It's right there in the middle. There's only three links on that page. Click on the live events one and you can see the link and a little bit of details about the show that we have coming up this Wednesday as you're listening to this in real time. And if you ever want to, if you ever missed a live show, because we had to pick a consistent day and time for this, mm-hmm. but if you ever missed a live show, again, if you're a member of the APN, you can see it for free. Uh, well, for your membership cost, which is only seven ninety nine a month right. or less if you buy it annually. Mm-hmm. I guess twenty five percent off if you get the annual one. So that's actually a pretty good deal. I mean we just upped our Netflix to like sixteen dollars a month. So <laughs> I mean I don't know I know we don't have the content, but seriously. <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, so go check that out. And for everybody else that is a current member, then head over to your member pages and you can listen to our bonus segment four on the prehistory of the Pacific Northwest. All right, so with that Uh, Thanks for listening. Go check out our member pages, arcpodnet.com forward slash members. Please join us. Help us keep these things going. And we will see you next week. Bye.
Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Become.